0: Of free movement and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Colin Yeo. Colin say hi to everyone. Hi Sonia. Um, So this is our August 2023 monthly roundup of what what we've covered on the website. Uh, Reminder if you do want to keep a record of listening to the podcast as part of your continuing professional development then click on members at the top of the page then select online training from the drop down menu under topic choose updates and filter courses. I'm also going to make it much easier for you by putting a direct link to this month's training and quiz when we put the podcast up on the website. Um, So we're gonna launch straight into it. It was August, it was a quiet month. There wasn't so much happening as far as case law and parliament was in recess. So we did a few policy pieces and Colin is gonna start off with a couple of his.
1: Thanks, Sonia. Yeah, I have to say, I'm enjoying this reversal of uh, our normal way of doing things. <laughs> you, you doing the intro is great as far as I'm concerned. Um, so the the first one I've got is on um, basically this, this Daily Mail sting that we saw um, over the summer on certain immigration solicitors. Um, they were recorded on video um allegedly saying sort of various things and so on. I don't know what what's going on with those cases now or what stage they've reached with the regulators or, or police or whatever. Um, but it was um yeah, it was quite a big deal when it happened. And it was um, I think it um was released to coincide with Small Boats Week, as it was, as it was called by the government. Um, although I might have that wrong actually thinking about it now. But um I wrote a piece saying that um I thought it was important to say this, that journalists do perform a public service in exposing dodgy lawyers, basically. And I know a lot of us felt under attack here, but this sort of sting isn't something I feel like regulators can realistically do. And they don't really have the kind of powers set up. It's not really their job to be carrying out these kinds of investigations you know the, what they're actually I know that sounds silly but they're supposed to be regulating risk they're supposed to be regulating the system as a whole they're not supposed to be carrying out quasi-criminal type investigations of this nature and obviously the police could do it but you know, they've got incredibly stretched resources And when we've seen these kind of exposures in the past as well, it's always been driven by newspapers, um, usually of a a right wing variety like the Daily Mail. Um, But I I do go on to say in the piece that, you know, while this is clearly a legitimate investigation, we've also seen some very illegitimate attacks on immigration lawyers. And those have been very much conflated for, for political purposes by papers like the Daily Mail, like the Telegraph. Um, and and unhelpfully, the um, at the same time this was going on, the Telegraph was reporting that uh, dozens of lawyers um, were, were, were allegedly helping illegal migrants, um, and that there had been five lawyers convicted of assisting unlawful immigration. Um, now, that's a very specific offence under the seventy-one Act, and I thought that's that's incredible. I haven't heard that before. Um, that that's surely massive news. And I think it actually it turns out it was um, breaches of the OISC regulatory scheme. So it's people who weren't even immigration lawyers as such. They're people who who weren't regulated. They weren't solicitors. They weren't even OISC advisors. And that's why they got prosecuted. So, um, yeah, once you start to kind of scratch below the surface, these, um, you know, these allegations are very serious. But um, there's an awful lot of other stuff going on as well at the same time. So, um, yeah, I, it, it was an interest, interesting one to write. Um Sonia, I, I think we're going to come back to this. The the SRA's just issued a, a, a statement, hasn't it? Um, and um, neither of us have had a chance to look at it properly, but there, it, it looks from what other people are saying like this might well be a response to this. Do you think that's fair?
0: Um, yes, potentially. And I am going to have a call with them on Monday to discuss further. So uh, I'll be writing that up at some point soon. Yeah,
1: so watch this space. Um, The next item I'm covering as well, I think I'll just keep this one fairly quick, Um, because I was away over the summer, thankfully, and um, I had a little break from Twitter, or X as it was by the time I actually came back. It was Twitter when I left, it was X when I came back. Um, I had a bit of an experiment, basically just checking in very occasionally, not really tweeting anything at all, I don't think, over that period. Um, the auto tweets that I've, I've set up with various different services carried on going. And if you're interested in how that all works and what services I use, then you can you can check out that blog post. I tried out threads um, for for a couple of weeks. And I, I quite liked it, actually. But the reality is there just aren't, aren't as many people on it. Immigration law Twitter is still immigration law Twitter or X or whatever. It's not, it's not moved over to, to threads. And neither have the kind of policymakers, the journalists and so on. And the, the last couple of days have been a reminder of the impact that that Twitter can have, because we've we've had um, Suella Bravman's big New York speech, um, and they had an awful lot of coverage of that in certain newspapers. And I've been sort of trying to put together a couple of responses to, to things that she's been reported to have said, and, and they've had big traction on Twitter. I didn't have time to put them on um, sort of threads and, and Blue Sky, that's the other kind of competitor service. Um, and... Um, yeah, I think I said to you Sonia, didn't I like I feel like a little bit of me dies every time somebody retweets me I don't read, it's just it feels really exhausting even though you're not doing anything once once something takes off but um yeah there's, there's just those other services just do not have that kind of reach or or impact you're you're a kind of um you're sticking with x aren't you
0: I don't call it that I still call it twitter and yes from my cold dead hands I mean really I just I I don't have the mental or emotional capacity to engage with yet another social media network yeah. thing. I mean, you already made me join LinkedIn.
1: <laughs> yeah. you, 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 LinkedIn, actually, it's not as bad as it used to be. It used to be awful, and it still is pretty awful, but it's not as bad as it used to be. And you know, and, and we both find Twitter useful for staying up to date. Um, you know, the little immigration bot service that I set up years and years ago is, is dead handy for sort of tweeting out home office announcements and stuff.
0: Yes, I love immigration bot.
1: Yeah, he's great, isn't he? And um, and it's just, you know, it's a really good way of kind of keeping up to date and getting instant feedback on stuff and so on as well. So, and and that's, that's not changed. Um, so, and I wish it would, actually. I wish, yeah, I don't like Elon Musk. I don't like, I don't like all the misogyny. I don't like the racism. It's a horrible place in some ways, but it's also useful for professional purposes.
0: No, I mean, giving money to that man is absolutely where I would draw the line. If that happens, I'm out. Uh, so I've downloaded my Twitter archive just in case, and I am ready to go now but I will sort of wait until the, the final days, which I don't, I'm not sure if we're there yet, but we'll see.
1: Right, well, I think the next one, the next one's one of yours, I think, isn't it?
0: It was a real uh, spreadsheet month, August. So this was um, our summary of the latest home office statistics, which I called Look Closer, because essentially my main point with looking in particular at the asylum statistics is that things are changing very quickly at the moment and using figures for the full year can distort things quite a lot. For example, the number of Albanians who are coming across the channel has absolutely plummeted and Afghans are now the highest nationality who are making that journey. And I think that's been the case since the end of last year. But the Home Office summary reports Albanians as the highest nationality for the year ending June 2023. And that's because they're using the whole 12 month, not what has been happening more recently. The issue with withdrawal of asylum claims is also disguised if you look at the um, year as a whole, whereas if you look at the last two quarters separately, you, you can see that something problematic is happening there, and I'll discuss that a bit more later. Uh, On detention, we can see that people have been detained for longer. That was even before the new parts of the Illegal Migration Act on detention came into force. And that has happened today, 28th of September, 2023. Some good news in the statistics is that on citizenship, over 6,000 people have applied for British citizenship up to the end of June 2023. And that is under the new provisions in the Nationality and Borders Act to correct historical unfairness in nationality legislation. So that is... I think about the only good thing that came out of the Nationality and Borders Act. So it's good to see that so many people have been able to sort their their citizenship out using that route. No,
1: yeah, that is good news. I hadn't followed that actually, so that's um that that comes as news to me as you're saying that. So that's that is really interesting. That is really interesting. Um, right on to I think and something from me before we go back over to you. So this was about the um tripling of the maximum illegal working fines for employers from um fifteen thousand per worker um to forty five thousand per worker. Or, or even more than that for for subsequent offences, and um, I think uh, listeners won't be terribly surprised here that we think that's a really bad idea, <laughs> because you know fifteen thousand is already an absolutely huge amount of money. The Home Office is terrible at collecting it, and we've we've just actually published a blog post. We're not going to go into detail on now because we'll, we'll we'll deal with that in a subsequent podcast um, about the the collection rate of the Home Office. Um, we you know we, we follow the chief inspector reports um, fairly closely we've seen that a lot of employers simply go bankrupt or close down and reopen under a different name or whatever they call it phoenixing at the home office um and then you know legitimate employers are really badly penalised already by by the 15000 pound per worker so you know, increasing that to absolutely huge levels um it is going to be incredibly punishing for them so we would don't think that's a terribly good idea basically and what, one of the things that really, really irritated me about this was linking it to small boat crossings because there's, there's just nothing, nothing to suggest that this would have any impact whatsoever on small boat crossings. God, you were going to say
0: something. I was just going to say that really, really irritated me as well. I covered that in detail in my article about our Freedom of Information request, so we can discuss that more next month. Okay, so we're on to asylum now, and I'm going to discuss my article Home Office Change in Practice Increases Risk of Homelessness for Recognized Refugees. So. This one essentially i saw an article in the guardian that mentioned someone being given seven days notice to leave their asylum accommodation and i just wasn't clear whether it was a one-off or not i was like something is going on here this looks really strange but i wasn't sure if it was a wider problem so i tweeted and several people messaged me saying yes 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 this is a huge problem uh, it's not my area of expertise, asylum support. I am always very explicit about that, so I relied heavily on help from other people in doing this article. Essentially, in the most basic terms, the Home Office previously would give people their 28 days notice that they have to leave their asylum accommodation after they receive their biometric residence permit. This is just common sense because For a variety of reasons, issues and delays with receipt of biometric residence permits are common. And also you need your biometric residence permit before you can do things like access public funds, get a job, uh, find accommodation. So, you know, that was the system previously. The Home Office, in their wisdom, which was apparently uh, a result from Denric going on a rant, they have changed their practice and it seems that the t- the 28 days that they have to give is now running from the date of the decision letter the decision letter is not of much use for anyone, because you need your biometric residence permit. So, the result is that some people are being given as little as seven days' notice of eviction, and the result of that is that newly recognised refugees are being made street homeless. Organisations all over the country have been doing a huge amount of work to try to mitigate this harm, particularly refugees at home who have just been amazing with all of the work that they've been putting into this. But, you know, this change came out of nowhere. There was no public communication from the Home Office about it. Their position was actually that nothing had changed, which is obviously incorrect. Full details and explanation is in my article and the important bit at the end is that anyone who is in this situation or helping someone in this situation is uh, advised to contact the Asylum Support Appeals Project because they are the experts on this and their details are in the article.
1: And I, I've, I've heard from several people this is a, a really useful article so a sort of big thank you for for researching and writing it and um yeah, it's just, it's such a bad idea, isn't it? The kind of, you know, yes, you've been waiting for two, maybe three years, maybe longer for a decision on your asylum claim. Finally, you get it, you know, you're recognised as a refugee. It means that you're going to be basically, and it, obviously you only get the five-year grant, but it means that you're going to be a permanent resident eventually in the United Kingdom, um, to all intents and purposes. And, and you know, the, the process that they're going through is basically making people homeless, Um you know it's it's just in, it's just incredible and to save what a few pounds at the home office but it, it makes it a lot harder for local authorities um you know it's just it's just nuts and there seems to be no rowing back on this from the home office as far as i've heard um you know th- this is this is something that you know it's it's not a mistake they're doing it deliberately and they're not planning on changing course as far as we can see so it's pretty depressing stuff
0: the other thing is they seem to be very reluctant to provide any data on biometric residence permits and you know the number of issues and how quickly they are delivered etc I've seen some parliamentary written questions go in around this issue and the Home Office seems quite determined not to provide any information. I did find something from I think November last year that I put in the article where Jenrick, I think it was, said that something like 80% of the BRPs are delivered on first attempt. I mean, 20% not being delivered on first attempt is a pretty significant problem when you are evicting people without them having their biometric residence permit, uh, because that additional delay obviously just increases the risk of homelessness to people. So again, it's just really, really concerning. So yeah, just solidarity with everyone who is working to help people who are in this situation, because from what I've heard, it's absolutely horrendous.
1: And it's a lot of people because they're suddenly making so many decisions. You know, so it's not it's not just a terrible idea in ordinary times. It's a, it's a super terrible idea because they're suddenly churning out, what, 2,000 decisions a week or something, the
0: vast majority of which are positive. Yeah, it's all just an absolute horror show. Okay, next I'm going to cover... I looked at the latest trafficking statistics. Uh, more delays, more refusals, no bad faith. So I'll just pick out a couple of headline points from the article. The... The big one, I think, for me, was the negative reasonable grounds decision, which is the initial stage of the being recognised as a victim of trafficking process. So between April and June 2023, so the most recent quarter in the statistics, 75% of those decisions were negative. Um, you look at the period October to December 2022, and only 16% of those decisions were negative. Now, what has happened here is in January this year, uh, provisions of the National Indian Borders Act relating to trafficking were brought into force and new statutory guidance was published. That has subsequently been challenged and the Home Office has accepted that that needs to change. So we'll see how that impacts the figures going forward. But again, you know, what an unnecessary mess. The other thing I found notable is that there have been no refusals on the grounds of bad faith. And the reason I picked that point out, I'm sure a lot of people will remember the sort of rhetoric around people pretending to be victims of modern slavery in bad faith and the government really pushing that out in their comms as an issue when the Act was going through Parliament. And that was obviously more nonsense because there have been zero refusals on those grounds. Yeah,
1: it it is just nonsense, isn't it? Because if if you did it in bad faith, and and what does that mean it means you're not a trafficking victim presumably so they just reject your claim anyway so they, they had the facility to do that it was just absolute oh, so annoying when they do that stuff but, um but yeah and, and that's what we see with the other changes you're talking about because it, it hasn't it's had a massive impact hasn't it absolutely massive impact and then the really again <laughs> it's, it's so easy to get cross with the home office isn't it they make it so easy for us um you know the kind of the, what what legal advice were they following that they immediately caved on this as soon as they were challenged in court. You know, it's it just obviously wrong to do, and you know they couldn't defend it, and they had to reverse course straight away. And what is going on there? It's just, it's just so frustrating.
0: As ever, if anyone, if anyone knows which lawyers have been advising the government on the National Indian Borders Act and the Illegal Migration Act, then by all means get in touch because we are fascinated.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's nuts. Um, okay, so I think the next item is one that I was going to cover fairly briefly. So we've got a post from Catherine Soroya on what next for evacuated Sudanese nationals, and we're not talking about very large numbers of people here. But because of the you know the crisis in Sudan last year, a certain number of people were evacuated, and um, I think perhaps understandably, um, you know the processes weren't terribly well established at that point. You know everybody was in a bit of a rush, um, and it looks like they were granted six months of leave. But with no um, conditions um, and no uh, no letter, basically explaining what the base of that grant was, so it's sort of assumed to be outside the rules, and that's causing various different problems because of you know the you know, local authorities are uh, very reluctant to uh, to, to sort of, you know, grant benefits to, to people who who aren't necessarily eligible and they can't tell whether somebody's eligible and so on. Um, and one thing that, that that struck me as I was rereading this though is that you know if you haven't had conditions imposed then you don't have conditions so you know I don't think there's it's dangerous when I go slightly off piste without sort of researching something beforehand but I don't think there's such a condition as recourse to public funds Um, you know as in you can have recourse to public funds there is a condition of no recourse to public funds but if that's not imposed then you can have recourse to public funds that's the kind of logic of it unless there are other separate regulations and rules which are separate to you know, your own personal immigration status, which prevent that. So that, that's something that's worth bearing in mind if you're trying to trying to help people in this situation. But um, yeah, do have a look at that if you're dealing with any such cases, and hopefully that will be of use. Um, Sonia, I think you're doing something next, aren't you?
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, we did have some interest from a journalist about that story as well. So hopefully it's something that there will be a bit more attention on, which would be great for the people concerned. So next i am going to cover my article is the home office unlawfully treating asylum claims as withdrawn so in last month's podcast we discussed a new briefing that we published on withdrawal of asylum claims and how the home office was doing it but in this article i just wanted to flag up that until the changes to the immigration rules on the 7th of august there was no explicit provision in the rules for withdrawing asylum claims on the basis of failure to report or failure to make contact with. Uh, maintain contact with the Home Office. These reasons were added to the guidance in May this year but not to the rules until August. So that is an Alvey point and that was the case where the Supreme Court held that substantive requirements in immigration control must be laid before Parliament as immigration rules under section 3 of the Immigration Act 1971, attempting to import or incorporate requirements in documents such as policy guidance outside the rules likely to be unlawful in addition to that i would note that i have heard from people that the home office was withdrawing claims on that basis since late last year so that is actually even before they were added to the guidance in may and presumably that all followed the prime minister's announcement that the backlog would be cleared by the end of this year one final important thing that i wanted to point out is that there is an email address people can use to ask for a withdrawn claim to be reinstated it's in the Home Office guidance, but I've also put it in the article to save people having to hunt for it.
1: Okay, and then um, I think one from me next, which is, I, I, found, I found this one quite shocking, actually, on um, asylum support. So, again, like you, this is not my um, area of speciality, should we say, and um, this is written up by John Crowley. Um, it, it's about a recent judgment covering a few different situations called um, H A and others 2023 EWHC 1876 Admin, and this is uh, Miss Justice Swift in the High Court, basically looking at the fairly fine-grained detail of asylum support and the sort of initial I don't know what to call it on- onboarding I suppose um, where where somebody is assessed for whether they are destitute. Um, and then also the support that is offered um, to um, women who are pregnant or have young children. And basically, the Home Office has been, as far as we can see, deliberately um, doing all sorts of different things which have um, prevented people from from getting the support to which they were legally entitled. Um, And some of this is written down and in published policies, and some of it really isn't. Um, And, you know, just things like uh, one of the things that really jumped out at me was the um, the pregnant women and um, with with young children. Um, there's there's a clear, explicit legal obligation to provide additional financial support, and the Home Office decided that they, they just weren't going to do that because if they're offering hotel support, uh, hotel accommodation, then they didn't need to for some mysterious reason that that just doesn't exist. Um, so yeah, it, it's quite a shocking case. And um, I haven't followed whether the Home Office has actually changed practice as a result. Um, I haven't heard that they have. Um, but the lawyers seem to be very on it on this. This was the 1st of August. So um, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll keep you updated if we if we if we do hear any more on that front.
0: Okay, it's me next. And this is one where I have gone away and figured out sort of hopefully what has happened since. So this is systematic and routine use of hotels for unaccompanied asylum seeking children is unlawful. This is the case that ECPAT brought I think it was against Kent County Council and the Home Office. So over 1,400 children have been accommodated in hotels since July 2021. No local authority is taking responsibility for them and they are outside the care system. 154 of them were missing. Those are children aged between 12 and 17. That was at July 2023. So a charity, Every Child Protected Against Trafficking, applied for judicial review, arguing that Kent County Council and the Home uh, Home Secretary were both acting unlawfully. The judge held that Kent County Council was in breach of its legal duty to accommodate and care for the unaccompanied children in its area. And as to the Home Office's use of hotels, the judge held that the power can only be used over very short periods in true emergency situations. The Home Secretary systematically or routinely providing accommodation herself would frustrate that intention and be unlawful. Uh, Another hearing took place on the 15th of September And at that, a High Court judge ordered the Home Office to take all possible steps to transfer children already housed in Kent hotels to the care of a local authority within seven days. And the order said if a child is placed in a hotel after the date of this order, the SSHD must take all possible steps to transfer each of them to the care of a local authority within five working days of the day on which they are so placed. Now, separately, Kent County Council has a judicial review against the Home Office that I believe is listed for the 5th of October. And I think that is a challenge to the way the National Transfer Scheme is being operated. The National Transfer Scheme relates to children being transferred to local authorities across the UK. There is a link to a full explainer by us in this case update. And at the 15th of September hearing in the ECPAT case, the judge ordered that there should be a hearing on further relief to be listed no earlier than two weeks and no later than four weeks after the hand down of the judgment in the Kent County Council claim against the Secretary of State for the Home Department. So that is the current state of affairs with that litigation, and it seems that there's still quite a bit to come.
1: Yeah, it, again, um, it's again sort of really sudden to overuse the word shocking, but um, it's really awful conduct by the Home Office. I sort of I wonder how much of this is. Due to the asylum backlog, when it comes down to it, but just because the Home Office is so stretched and they're, you know, they're focusing um, so narrowly on on quite quite tight issues, and they're they're letting a lot of other stuff um, just go get get out of control. Basically, it's like um, I've used the analogy of like squeezing a balloon. You know, they they kind of their crisis management, they they sort of you know rush all their resources to one thing, and it creates gaps everywhere else, um, and and all sorts of problems happening. In other places instead and this is one of those places and it's um as kids we're talking about um yeah you know if um yeah they're, they're just that it has it's, it's a bit appalling really isn't it absolutely appalling um okay so um on to another uh, upbeat subject um one of my least favorite bits of the immigration rules um adult dependent relative visas but um i, I suppose slightly you know slightly more optimistic it's a really good blog post this one by john vasiliu um, I think it was triggered by a case that he'd been working on for quite a substantial period of time, We're talking about sort of you know over a year, um, and he'd gone to an awful lot of effort ev- effort to, to prepare the evidence and, and, and get it all ready and so on, and it, it did end up going to appeal. And I don't think he says that in the blog post actually, but it's one of the things to bear in mind if you're doing these cases is that as well prepared as it might be, you know, unless you get pretty lucky with with the Home Office caseworker and get somebody reasonable, um, the chances are it is going to end up going to appeal, but you've got to get it prepared right at the outset. You know, the evidence has got to be there in the application. Well, it should be there in the application um, to give yourself best chance of, of, of winning it later. So. John's quite careful to say this isn't like a template or cookie cutter or whatever, Um, but it's a really long blog post. It's well worth going through in detail. He emphasizes the importance of good quality evidence, expert evidence in particular, not doing things like just putting in um, hospital records or or prescriptions or whatever. That's no use to anybody, basically. Um, And also emphasizing the kind of soft, aspects of care um you know the emotional side of things the amount of time that people have to invest in this and going a bit beyond just the kind of mechanics of of caring for somebody um which is only you know one aspect of of looking after somebody who's who's got these kinds of care needs so i I think it's a really thoughtful interesting long blog post it's well worth your time if you are dealing with these kinds of applications and you're you're wondering whether a case might be a runner or not. And um, yeah, have have a look at that and go through it in some detail.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's an area that John is also quite passionate about um, and absolutely excellent blog post. I did look in the latest statistics to see if they had the figures in there for applications and grants, but it doesn't seem to be broken down enough. So uh, it may be worth an FOI, I suppose, at some point that is for me to do. Um, Okay so next we are on to EU settlement scheme applications and Nat has written a useful explainer on who qualifies as a durable partner under the EU settlement scheme. So this covers what does durable partner mean anyway, uh, the relevance of the date of the start of the relationship, durable partners applying as joining family members. It also has lots of useful examples and it does conclude with the fact that we're unlikely to see many new applications made by durable partners under the EUSS, since most people who are in a durable relationship by the 31st of december 2020 and who are eligible will have applied already Um, so for anyone who is still working on these cases go and read that article Uh, Next one is me as well. Post Brexit spouses aren't protected by the withdrawal agreement. Court of Appeal confirms. And essentially, this one just says if you married an EU national in the UK after 31st of December 2020, you can't get leave to remain under the EU settlement scheme unless you previously had or applied for an EEA residence card or family permit as their durable partner. That remains the case even if you would have got married sooner but for the impact of COVID which is hugely unfair and that case is Chellick in the Court of Appeal. The article also concludes with some alternative options for anyone who is in this position.
1: So over to me next, so I think I'm covering um, the immigration skills charge, I think we can just briefly mention this. So it, it's a write-up by Imogen Skoular and uh, it, it's basically just describing what the immigration skills charge is and how it works, what it is, um, how much it is and and, and so on. Um, one of the questions that I, I posed to Imogen when I was commissioning this was what actually happens to the money that is generated by this? We don't, we just don't really know um, and that was reinforced a bit later. So it's a couple of weeks after we published this. The Home Office belatedly published their accounts for 2022, I think it was. And while they talked about transfers of the immigration health charge out of the Home Office to um, regional um, administrations into the NHS, although strangely, I think it was um, CJ um, McKinney who pointed this out on Twitter, not, not as much as they collected. They transferred out less than, than they actually took in. Um, But they don't seem to have transferred out anything from the immigration skills charge. So it's supposed to be, you know, funding skills training or something like that for employers. But um, it seems to be staying within the Home Office, which is um, a bit of a mystery. So, yeah, I I I think we can um, wrap that one up. There's not much more to say about it. But if you're interested in the immigration skills charge, there's a whole blog post all about it just for you on free movement.
0: Similarly, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail or any detail about how to apply for a religious work visa. But if you have someone who wants to do one of those, we now have a very handy explainer for you.
1: Excellent. Well, moving swiftly on, um, I've got another one to cover. And this is quite a complicated case. Um, The, the title is No Windrush Compensation for Man Who's ILR Lapsed While Imprisoned Abroad. And it's a case called Thompson Against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2023 EWHC 2037 Admin. And... um. Mr. Thompson had been born in Jamaica, came to the UK as a child in 1969, automatically acquired indefinite leave to remain in 1973 when the 71 Act came into force. Um, He later committed criminal offences. On a trip to Jamaica, he was uh, imprisoned while he was there. And because he was in prison for a while, it was over two years and his indefinite leave to remain therefore automatically lapsed. He came back to the UK... Um, and committed further offences by the looks of things. And uh, a deportation order was eventually made. And it turned out later, uh, or transpired later, that that shouldn't have happened because um, he was exempt from deportation. Um, The 71 Act protected people in his position who are Commonwealth citizens um, and who were ordinarily resident in the UK on the 1st of January 1973. So it was an unlawful deportation order. And eventually he was readmitted to the UK and given indefinite leave to enter. But it's... um, the, the case highlights the, the dangers of litigation potentially because there wasn't necessarily a reason for the Home Office to grant indefinite leave to enter in this particular case. Um, his ILR had lapsed and that that was how the law worked. That wasn't unlawful. There was nothing legally wrong with that. Um, and therefore in strict legal terms, I don't think the Home Office was obliged to to grant him indefinite leave to enter um, for, 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 for the purpose of readmission. Um, and it also came to light, I think, during the litigation that he'd actually um, committed further offences under a false name as well while in the UK um, which might potentially cause him problems. So it, it, the, essentially the the, lo- the long and the short of it is it's, it's a kind of case study in Know long residence and um, the various different things that can happen to your status if you've been here a long time um, and you get into trouble, and he wasn't entitled to compensation under the Windrush scheme um, on the facts of his case. Okay, Sonia, I think it's over to you for the next one.
0: Yes, so this is just such a useful article, and I say that as someone who has really struggled in the past with how OISC registration works so uh, jasmine who is our training manager she has written an article called how do i become an oisc advisor and it covers pre-registration it explains the need to be regulated it covers what experience and training you need knowledge and assessment preparation then the application for registration itself and also new advisor applications and competence statements, and then what you need to do post-registration. So that's audits, notifying them of change of circumstances, renewing your registration and your continuing professional development training. And while we're talking all things OISC, just to flag up that we have been running our live OISC immigration law training, which has been going really well. And I am teaching next one which starts on Monday which I'm quite looking forward to.
1: Yes I hope hope all that goes well I've got to start I've I've always called called it OISC which is a real mouthful and I keep on missaying it when I'm speaking quickly so I'm going to try and follow your lead and start calling it OISC instead Um, and I think the the article one of the things I found really interesting about it is I've never really understood how people um, get the cart before the horse or whatever with um, you you know you need experience in order to get registered but to to, to actually get experience you kind of already need to be registered and and um i I thought what jasmine wrote here was actually quite helpful on that front as well so um yeah good good article worth reading
0: yeah wildly wildly useful any charities or anyone who is you know not regulated by the sra or the bar standards board i recommend that they read this article just very very useful Uh, just going to finish off by mentioning four articles that we updated in august and those are the general grounds for refusal, alleged deception, false information and innocent mistakes. We also updated how to apply for a UK expansion worker visa. Also, what are the financial requirements for UK spouse and partner visas and how to make a complaint to the Home Office. So all four of those have been refreshed and updated. So I'm just flagging that up to you. On that note, if anyone comes across something that they particularly want updated, then do feel free to drop me an email because I'm working through all of those at the moment. This wasn't really a very good news month for us, so we don't have a happy note to end on, but thanks for sticking with us anyway, and we will be back soon with our September roundup. Bye!
1: Bye!